Obama was like, hey, I'll say Black Lives Matter. He didn't have a choice. He was black, right? Bernie Sanders was scared to say Black Lives Matter from day one until he realized that like, oh, okay, it's going to kill me professionally. It's going to kill me politically. So I think defund the police falls into the same category. Eventually, you'll have more and more states do it, and then people will stop being afraid of them. From the Grio, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Jason Johnson. And you're listening to What's In It For Us. Hello, Dr. Johnson. We've got a great show today. We'll be talking about the Georgia Senate debates and the disaster that that was. Biden is choosing more and more people in his cabinet. We'll see if they can get confirmed. And then lastly, what is the role of the mayors in New York City and how are they going to deal with this new normal? So what you're telling me is we're going to talk one bit debate, one bit who gets a new job and what these people who want new jobs are going to try and do. That's essentially what you're talking about, right? I want to make sure I understand what we're talking about. That sounds about right to me. And in the midst of this, we will be asking the key question that drives everything in this podcast. What's in it for us? So before we get started, Jason, I want to talk about something that's been going on in our timeline this week, which is your good friend, former President Barack Obama, oh saying that slogans like defund the police and other quote unquote snappy slogans, actually the progress and the movement and progressive Democrats in particular should focus on other ways to articulate their message and their visioning. What say you, Dr. Johnson? Why is anybody surprised at anything Barack Obama says? Why? I don't understand this. Why are people shocked? Have you not paid attention to this man? He is a black respectability politics kind of black person. And so is his wife. And that's fine. And he was president and he gave health care to several million people and released people from jail and got rid of three strikes, all sorts of different kinds of stuff. Why are people expecting him to be the leader or even at the front line of important issues that he's never expressed a particular affinity towards? None of this makes any sense to me. Above and beyond the fact, Dr. Greer, that it's just patently wrong. Like it's patently wrong. The whole, like the defund the police, we've had this conversation. I've had this in various locations. I've written about this. There are no Democrats who lost their seats, who ran on defund the police. And in fact, I think probably the only Democrats who ran this year at a federal level advocating defunding the police was Cori Bush. And she's coming out of Ferguson, and that's a unique example. So I don't even know what they're talking about with this argument. Well, you know, the thing that makes me chuckle is that, you know, progressive Democrats are just so frustrated and up in arms about what he said. And I was like, well, keep in mind, the only thing radical about Barack Obama is his skin tone. And what he has said is cafe au lait is Kahlua really that radical? I don't well, know. Well, for a U.S. president, we've seen that we've been oh, catching okay. hell ever since. But you know, when he was president the first term, it was all about okay. First of all, he did sort of save us from going off a financial cliff and gave health care to millions of Americans. So that was the first half of the first term. Then right. after the shellacking in the midterm elections, first half of the first term, we're like, okay, he's got to focus on re-election. Let's not expect him to do too much. Then right. he gets reelected. It's like, well, he's got to focus on the midterm elections of his second term. So let's not expect him to do too much. Then after the midterms of his second term, the last two years, the lame duck session, it's like, mm -hmm. okay, so do you not want to say anything? I mean, he's teetering on Bill Cosby, pound cake speech, pull your pants up, respectability politics. Okay, first off, I'm offended, Dr. Greer. I'm offended. <laughs> One, because I'm a fan of pound cake. And two, because Bill Cosby engaged in behavior as horrendous as Barack Obama is. All Obama did was like order drone strikes that killed hundreds of thousands of people abroad. He wasn't necessarily accused of sexually assaulting and raping and abusing women for 40 years. So let's make it distinction um, well the distinction is though but i'm not talking about their personal behavior i'm talking about when they talk to oh, black people oh, oh, I know, when they I talk know. to black people they're similar because this I is was, the same 
U.S. president who went to Morehouse College and finger wagged a whole bunch of black graduates that in the true. rain and told them and their families that they shouldn't be having baby mamas and twerking and selling drugs and dealing with Pookie, their cousin. I'm sorry, sir. Who and, has a cousin named Pookie? And Besides people in your imagination of, of blackness. He told a bunch of black folks to put on their house shoes. Like, again, I don't know why anybody is surprised that Barack Obama acts like a 50-something-year-old black man with money. I mean, like, this is because he is. Like, why are you shocked by this? I, again, now, the difference, I would say, again, you said it's it's pound cake light, so maybe it's like Little Debbie, right? Not quite full pound cake. <laughs> yellow so, sponge. He's, yeah, he's giving yellow sponge cake speeches. Yes, yeah, exactly. The Twinkie speech is actually, it's not full pound cakes, just Twinkie. Here's the other thing. It's like, unlike, say, the disdain that Bill Cosby seemed to have for black and brown folks, the thing with Barack Obama is like, and I think this is important, and I give some of these folks, because across the spectrum, right, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Clyburn, and Barack Obama have all said they're against defunding the police and have criticized the statement. So let's be clear that all across the mainstream Democratic spectrum, they said they don't like that slogan. There is a difference, and Obama could have made this distinction, but he didn't. There's a difference between saying, I don't like the slogan and I don't like the policy. I think every single one of them would admit that they are in favor of police reform. And quite frankly, every single one of them would probably say, oh, yeah, some of these cities that have said, let's take 20% out of the police budget and put that into social workers and people who can be de-escalation interventionists so that we don't have to bring in guests. I don't think one of them would disagree with that. Right. They're just scared of the name. Just like not one of them, Obama was like, hey, I'll say Black Lives Matter. He didn't have a choice. He was Black, right? Bernie Sanders was scared to say Black Lives Matter from day one until he realized that like, oh, okay, it's going to kill me professionally. It's going to kill me politically. So I think defund the police falls into the same category. Eventually, you'll have more and more states do it and then people will stop being afraid of the name. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we'll talk about this in the upcoming months. But the question really is at the root of this is, is Barack Obama right then? Because if he says that it's a slogan that's turning people off and we know that ultimately people are going to change the slogan to actually get what they want, is he? right in the end. No, no, Dr. Greer, he's wrong. He's completely wrong. I'm shaking him by the proverbial collar, even though he's very tall. No, it's wrong. Here's why he's wrong. This is that basic political science common sense stuff. It's the same thing, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about Warnock and Leffler and Purdue and Ossoff and everything else like that. The kind of person who's actually motivated negatively by defund the police was never going to vote for a Democrat in ever. But here's the flip side. Saying defund the police does actually activate a base of Democratic and especially Black Democratic voters. So what they're complaining about is not only a stylistic issue, but it's also wrongheaded from the motivational standpoint, because if you ran on, I want to defund the police, you know what? You're not going to lose a vote. You won't lose one vote. But if you're mealy mouth, well, I, I don't really know. I don't really know about the police and reform. And I love cops and blue lives matter, all that kind of stuff. I promise you, you will lose a percentage of young African-American and Latino voters who don't want to hear that nonsense. Well, I think, Jason, you know, we'll have to dissect this as the weeks go on, because I do think that the type of Black voter that believes in defund the police is the type of Black voter that Democrats need. And it's also the type of Black voter who may not have been as participatory, because let's be clear, the vast majority of Black ideological diversity is trapped in one party. And we do know that there are few Black people who don't believe in defund the police because right. they're moderate to conservative because they can't be Republicans because Republicans have cast their lot with white nationalists. So they're stuck as Democrats, but they aren't progressives. And so Black skin does not equal progressive politics either. Here's the thing, though, Dr. Greer, and I've always thought this, and I've written talked about this when it comes to police. Even conservative, moderate Black folk 
I don't think they would have a problem with what defunding the police actually means. True. That's the other okay. issue. Like, I don't think there ain't nobody out there. And I used to make this argument all the time that policing and police brutality and police corruption is a financial and a civic issue. And no one makes that argument enough. When you look at a city like Pittsburgh, I did a whole research study on this. You look at the city of Pittsburgh, the taxpayers are paying an extra $1,500 every single year for every cop to pay off the settlements from police yes. brutality. When you look at New York like, City, New York City, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year because of bad behavior of police officers. Right. So, okay, Jason, let's put a pin in this because I think that we will need to revisit this because yes. we've got Black police officers, we've got conservative Black folks who are Democrats, we've got progressive Black folks, a loud faction, but definitely not the largest faction of the Democratic mm. Party. And we definitely need to defund the police. So as this conversation moves I forward- I want to abolish the police, but I'm a hey, troublemaker. And let's do that too. So <laughs> as we move forward in the Biden-Harris administration, let's see how this conversation either stays on the table or if due to expediency, they move it off the table. We shall see. So moving on. This is what I want to talk to you about, Jason. We both spent time in Georgia. I want to talk to you about two debates that happened. The first being your boy John Ossoff and his Republican <laughs> opponent, the sitting senator, Mr. Purdue, does not decide to show up for the debate because he had a shellacking the last time. It was like, nah, I'm not signing up for another one. So John no. Ossoff debated an empty podium. On the other side of town, we had Kelly Loeffler, who I guess she was like Vicky from Small Wonder and debated wow. Reverend Warnock and just kept on repeat radical liberal. You know, I felt at some point she was teetering on the N-word. I was like, girl, you gonna say it? But I do want to dissect the two debates. First, let's go with Ossoff debating an empty chair and the symbolism and the visual of that, because I think the racial politics and the gender dynamics of the Loeffler-Warnock debate, I really want to get into second. So let's just get Ossoff off the table. Ossoff debates an empty podium. What were you thinking about that debate? How did you feel? Do you think it worked for him in the long run? So here's the thing. I'm going to be fair and I'm going to cheat because you know that's what I generally do in these situations. So basically you had two people debating empty chairs. <laughs> but um bump. I mean, because really Loeffler was really no more engaging than the empty seat that Ossoff spoke to. I think, and this allows us to put on our, sort of our political science hats, I think Purdue not showing up at all in a runoff is indicative of two very core principles in political science. Number one, that runoff elections are purely about turning out your base and it doesn't really matter. And two, that debates really don't end up making that much of a difference as far as turnout goes, especially in a runoff. A debate in a presidential election, it can raise or lower enthusiasm. Like if your candidate does crappy, you're like, I'm gonna tuck in my chain for a couple of weeks, I feel bad. But at the end of the day, in a state runoff, it doesn't. So Ossoff, who actually gave a really good answer about defunding the police and police brutality, I thought Ossoff actually performed pretty well for speaking into emptiness. I'm going to say this because I'm being consistent about it. The moderators aren't very good. No. I mean, they're not ready for prime time. I was there for the debates with Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. I just don't think these local moderators recognize that the world and the whole nation is watching and they have some of the most pedantic, ridiculous questions I've ever seen. I won't name specifically who, but boy, they were bad. But I think Ossoff performed as well as could be performed when you ain't got nobody to talk to and you've got empty questions coming from your moderator. So, but again, and we're going to get into this when we talk to Warnoff, Ossoff ain't the story in Georgia. He's not. Ossoff is the side dressing. Ossoff is, do you want another biscuit with that? A very white biscuit. That's what it is. Because the main need of this is actually Warnock. And that's what we're going to talk about when it comes to him and Leffler. 
Well, I'm also fascinated to see what the numbers actually look like since they're both on the ballot together. And right. if we happen to see an Ossoff Loeffler win, right? Mm-hmm. And so who will split their tickets that way? Because Ossoff is presenting a very sort of white male Southerness, something right. that Reverend Warnock does not. They're trying to tie him to, you know, Reverend Wright in Chicago and radical Black politics. I mean, this man and his vest and his beagle and just, you know, one of the most respected churches in the entire city. Let's talk about that debate. Kelly Loeffler did every single dog whistle, dog bark computation that she could. I was like, are you speaking Morse code to white people in the audience? Like, what is happening? I don't think it was Morse code. It was very clear. (laughs) It was very, it was beyond clear. But I'm always so fascinated with debates. I know that they don't necessarily move the needle. But when I talk to my students about this, when we have gender dynamics, when we have racial dynamics. So we remember when Barack Obama was debating Hillary Clinton as a black man debating a white woman, right? Mm-hmm. Kelly Loeffler is a little younger than Hillary Clinton. So you have people who are sort of matched in age, which was also an interesting dynamic. It made me think about when Stacey Abrams was debating Brian Kemp as a black woman, right? And Brian Kemp was sort of like, she's yelling at me, my feelings are getting hurt. And so these crocodile white tears that happen in these debates. And so I know that Kelly Loeffler kept trying to goad Reverend Warnock. And my Twitter feed was definitely saying, you know, why isn't he going on the offensive? Why is he letting her just say lie after lie? Why isn't he going on the offensive? And it's like, hey, he can't go on the offensive because no. the minute he does, she is going to scream Southern Belle, damsel in distress. And I'm so afraid at the podium and look at this aggressive black man who happens to be a pastor, by the way. So how do you think that that shook out? Did it change any hearts and minds of people who were watching the debate? No, no. And Dr. Greer, I got to push back when people are saying that she was like laying attack after attack. Look, I've heard answering machines from 1987 that has stronger passion than Kelly. I mean, like, I listened to this, and I first of all, I don't think either one of them did great, but I think that she was so bad. This is not partisan bias, but it's like, can you at least believe what you're saying? Like, when she was like, Raphael Warnock, the radical hater of blah, 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 blah. Like, it was just the same monotone. No passion, no inflection, no fear. Like, she didn't legitimately come across as someone afraid of what Warnock would do. Like, I need to hear someone say, my God, puts the pearls. If this Black man gets into the White House, it'll be yeah. fried chicken and Tiger Woods everywhere. I mean, that's what I needed to that hear. Tiger Woods? What? <laughs> <laughs> dangerous black man like you know, as a side note jason what i find actually hilarious is all the things that these white conservative racists thought that barack obama would do donald trump has done like the disgrace that he has brought upon the united states and the white house it's like it is a disease filled you know vestibule of miscellaneous grifting family members and people living off the trough of American politics. Like, I'm just fascinated. Barack was supposed to bring like fried chicken, biscuits, chitlins, and nonsense into the White House. And yet it was Donald Trump. Donald Trump and his buckets of chicken. Hamburgers and KFC, like at the damn White House. When he could have just literally taken them down the street to one of his own hotels, but he was too damn cheap to pay college kids. And can I just- remember that big McDonald's spread? Big McDonald's. I was like, what an insult. I just won a major championship and you're giving me a whole Big Mac. And you and I are college professors. We know college kids will eat anything, right? Like That's how you get them to every single event. You can send cardboard with pizza sauce on it. They'll eat that, right? Like they're not concerned. But when these guys, their actual face, you know what it reminded me of? I know this is like, this is a deep cut, this is a backdrop. But like, do you remember College Hill? So it was BET's Real World Knockoff. Oh, yeah! And you remember the first episode? So all these black kids have grown up watching Real World. And they're like, oh, I can't wait to see the house. And then when they came in, it was was busted. Trashy dorm room. It that is so what these college students look like when they came to the White yeah. House. 
But the White House is supposed to be fancy, yet I'm eating something that I literally ate yesterday on my way. We drove past this place. We drove past Whataburger. Also, it's like Coach won't let us eat this because we got to stay in our game day weight. Like, right, right. None of it made sense. So I say all that to say, like, Loeffler didn't make me afraid. And it was so clear that she didn't really believe right. that he was all of the things that she was saying. And that's something I always say about sincerity. Even if I don't agree with you, it's like, right. you Give know. Give me some fire in the belly. But yeah, you know, Jason, Cruz that goes. believes the crap that he says. That goes back to your comment, though, about the moderators. Because if right. the moderators were able to ask questions that dug just one level down, we would show and we would see just how much she lacks any sort of understanding of policy. And she would literally sit there and drown in front of us. But because they kept these conversations- Are you threatening a white woman's safety, Dr. Greer, by suggesting that she drown in front? Is that what you're doing? Is that you what you're what? doing? Because right I'm afraid. I'm afraid. We can't let Dr. Greer into the White House. Listen, and I've said time and time again, as a Black woman, right, I know that there is nothing, nothing that beats a white woman's tears. Like, I would be a fool to think that anything that has ever happened to me or will happen to me would ever trump a white woman's tears in a professional setting, in a personal setting. So, I mean, I think that was also the thin line that Warnock treads because keep in mind, Georgia is also still the South. And I know, as Malcolm X said, everything that happens south of the Canadian border is still the U.S. South. I get it. But there is still a politic down there that is unique to a Southern respectability of white womanhood and Black Mm -hmm. maleness that plays out a little differently. Not saying that it's opposite, but it just plays out differently in the South. And I think she's well aware of that. You know, Mm -hmm. someone wrote and said, you know, she's that woman that your mother warned you about. And it's like, she is that woman that my mother warned me about, right? Because as a woman, I have to be careful of people like Kelly Loeffler because she can sink my battleship in a different way that she could sink Reverend Warnock. So I found that debate frustrating because I wish the moderators were more skilled to show us just how incompetent and unprepared she is for this job that she currently holds, by the way, right? right. right? She's not elected. She's appointed to the job. But the fact that she's a sitting senator and we see just how inept she is, is quite troubling. It's not just troubling, but I would say, Dr. Greer, that the one slick move that any moderator actually asks. And again, I want to contextualize this. I watch local state debates all the time. Those moderators in the Iowa Senate race, they were great. I've seen moderators in Ohio. Like, I think Georgia moderators are particularly bad. I've seen enough of them by comparison to, to Texas and Florida. I mean, the Florida moderators were better than this. But the one somewhat smart question that anyone ever asked is Loeffler kept saying, we've got to stop Warnock and Ossoff from coming in here and pushing through this radical agenda. And the moderator said, well, wait a minute. By saying we have to stop Warnock and Ossoff from pushing forth this radical agenda, are you tacitly acknowledging that Joe Biden won the election? And that yes, was like that was the an one, excellent question. That was the one smart question they asked. And then they let her off the hook. She was like, well, I'm still saying. It's like, no, right. I'm going to make you say on camera that Joe Biden won. And again, would that have changed the vote? No, but it would have been a news cycle for about 36 hours. Yeah, and that would have been a great way for... Republicans to start recognizing the reality, which is where I want to pivot because it is happening. January 20th is coming soon. And Joe Biden is the president elect. I don't care that, you know, Republican senators refuse to acknowledge it and say it out loud, whether they're, you know, working behind closed doors with the Biden transition team. But Biden is picking his cabinet. This is also why Georgia is so important, because depending on whether or not Mitch McConnell is the Senate leader, it will depend on whether or not Joe Biden's picks actually get through Or if he's going to be just an obstructionist and say no to everyone, even moderate folks, even concession candidates. So 
Joe Biden seems right now to be picking people who reasonable Republicans seem fine with. He's not choosing any radical leftists by any stretch of the imagination. He is coming up with one of the most diverse cabinets, way more diverse than Barack Obama's even. What are you feeling about some of these picks? I mean, look, moderate Republicans are about as effective as like the Jamaican bobsled team at this point. Like they exist, right? They don't don't really do anything. They're just there for us to say that they're actually there. And I am so sick and tired of these sort of suggestions like, well, if we can get Collins and Murkowski, whatever, these people aren't moderates. They're not. They're just cowards who always end up voting the same way anyway. They voted for Kavanaugh. So should they have a C in front of their name instead of a D or an R? They have a C. (laughs) It's for coward party, right? C Maine, C Arkansas. But I see Mitt Romney is the majority leader. Yeah, exactly. He is the leader of the seas. So I'm not moved by any of these thoughts that they're going to be the moderate Republican, whatever. I think almost everybody that Biden picks is going to have to be acting. I don't think they're going to get through unless these Senate seats end up being picked by Democrats, which I think this is important. I think there is a chance of that happening now. I think there's a better chance of that happening than I felt a week ago when we did this and certainly two weeks ago when we did our podcast. But I think most of these people, if that's not the case, are going to be acting. Here's the thing. I don't really think that any of Joe Biden's selections, except for Rouse for the Council of Economic Advisors from Princeton, who does really impress me, Look, none of these people are really going to radically change our lives at this point because the positions that we really give a crap about are going to be HUD and Labor Secretary and AG. Now, the rumor right now is that HUD may actually go to Marsha Fudge. I just literally heard that today because now they're thinking the Agriculture Secretary is going to go to Vilsack. Fine, if you want to find a Republican, whatever it is. But But HUD, AG, and labor are the ones that are going to matter because those are the people who are going to be in a position to change policy for states to look at their sort of health care and safety net situations during COVID. They're the ones who are going to be able to push to say, hey, look, because you notice, for example, in the new stimulus package or whatever it is, COVID package, McConnell is pushing through. They want to put a stipulation in there that if you catch COVID from your employer, you can't sue. Like we need a labor secretary who will stop that sort of thing. So people Biden pick so far, that's fine. I'm waiting for the big three. It's like, if Oscars, you care about like best picture. You don't care about like screenwriting. Right, like, listen, I don't care about animation and I really don't care about sound, right? Like I'm waiting for back. best actor. You take that back, Dr. Greer. <laughs> I said it, that was a jab. Just important. I don't care about short film and like low key, I don't care about, you know, like best foreign film either. Like yes. I really care about major actors and actors. Yeah, key grip and music, I don't care. Unless it's like yeah, it, John Williams it, and Star Wars, who cares? No, thanks. I'm definitely interested in AG because they're going to mm-hmm. have to sort of undo a lot of bar. Yeah. And I'm curious because we had Eric Holder and we had Loretta Lynch, we've had sort of very powerful black AGs, whether or not Biden will go along with that trend. Will it be another white man? I think in this case, I am interested in the descriptive representation. Someone as the AG. As far as HUD secretary, you know, you've said this consistently, Jason. I think this is a perfect place to insert Julian Castro, right? I mean, he has the skill set, you know, descriptively. I think it's a huge... You know what the rumor is, though? That there's a little bit of a grudge against him. Because he did so well in the debates and handed it to Biden. Like, they had to forgive. This is what I've heard from people on the inside, is that Biden had to forgive Harris. Plus, they had this pre-existing relationship because of her and Bo Biden. And he knew that she was always top of the list to be his. And they're senators together. And they're senators together. He ain't got to forgive Castro. That's what I have heard from that camp. And from because Castro would be perfect for the position. His policies are great. He would be much more effective. And this is no insult to Congresswoman Marsha Fudge. But it's like, you're not an expert in this particular area. Of course, you'll do well. But we already had someone who did a really good job. 
Right. And, and P.S. You'll do better than Ben Carson, but that's not saying anything, right? Like I would do better than Ben Carson and I know nothing about HUD. Guess what? Ne- neither did he. I can't trust someone to be in charge of housing who calls a Popeye's an establishment. Like, I mean, when, <laughs> if you call a chicken place a fried chicken establishment, I don't trust you to know the difference between a house, a foyer, <laughs> a front desk. I never trusted anything about Dr. Carson. So next time we're together, we're going to go to the restaurant of McDonald's. Right. It is technically <laughs> a restaurant. So it's like, I want to take you out to a restaurant, Jason. <laughs> they have outdoor some seating. fine dining at Boston Market, Dr. Gray. <laughs> All right, moving on. And before I let you get out of here, I'm fascinated by what's going on with mayors across the city. So I always tell my students this quote. When LBJ was in the midst of the civil rights movement, Vietnam is, is blazing. You know, it doesn't look like he should run for re-election. Everything seems to be crumbling around him. And a journalist asked, like, you know, so basically, how are you feeling? What are you thinking about this whole thing? Like, basically, your life is in shambles, as right. is this country. And he says, you know what? It could be worse. I could be a mayor, right? And that's how he viewed the presidency. It's like, this job is hard, but it's not a 40-hour-a-day job like being right. a mayor. And as we've seen in New York, you need somebody who's going to stay on the job throughout the entire tenure, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing mayors from across the country dealing with protests, dealing with police brutality and police unions, oftentimes that they have no control over, feeling financially strapped on the local, state, and federal levels. They're not getting that money in. Dealing with COVID, either people coming into their cities or just bad behavior on the part of actors within their cities. And then some of them are sort of like, I care about this, but also do I get a promotion now that Joe Biden's won? Because these are Democratic mayors of of almost all major cities are are Democratic mayors, tier one and tier two, sort of big, big cities and cities that are pretty substantive. So what are you thinking about U.S. mayors right now and the future of mayors? As an urbanist, you know, I'm always concerned about cities because that's where Black people are, right? So it's like, I only love Black people in cities. Those are the two things that I love. I'm the easiest person to figure out, right? (laughs) But I'm really worried about cities and their financial health and also their physical health because so many Black folks are really struggling financially and we see violence upticking because of that. And there's that correlation between unemployment and upticks in violence sadly, when people are feeling stressed and strapped. But the leadership is something that I'm curious about from your perspective. Well, you know, just give Dr. Greer a big, rich town. (laughs) So here's the thing. (laughs) I think it's interesting because, you know, you're an urbanist and, you know, you care about black and brown people. I'm a campaign guy. And what I've always found interesting about mayors, and, you know, right now I'm in L.A. You've had 14 days of protest, block Garcetti, okay? Like, like people out here are so angry. They don't even want Garcetti, who was, I think, a deputy Biden campaign manager for California. They don't even want him to get selected. We've had conversations on this podcast, an office podcast, about people like, I don't even want to hear you say the name Rahm. You I say the word Rahm Emanuel, and I will spit nails. Right. We spit hot fire and nails. If you say Emanuel, it better be Lewis or Mother Emanuel, okay? It can't be wrong. Like that is how people feel. And what I always find interesting is you look at, you look at Cory Booker, you look at who was the guy who came out of Maryland, who ran for president in 2016. I forget his name. Ah! Yeah. It's your, your, he's the O'Malley, mayor. Martin O'Malley. O'Malley. Martin mayor O'Malley. of Baltimore. Then Cory governor of Maryland. Booker. And then he was supposed to be our second Irish American president. Here's why we're seeing this sort of pushback on mayors when it comes to Biden's administration, the situations that are happening. 
if you look at it, when Cory Booker was attacked or criticized, to the degree that Cory Booker has ever attacked and criticized, when he ran for Senate and everything else like that, or even now when he was running for president, to the degree that anyone criticized him, they don't attack him for what he did as a senator. They attack him for what he did as mayor, right? O'Malley, they didn't, no one ever went after O'Malley for what he did as governor. They went after what he did as mayor. Or Being, failed to do as or mayor. Or failed to do as mayor. Mm-hmm. Being mayor is always a part, it's a necessary stepping stone in order to go to higher office. A lot of our presidential candidates, a lot of our senators started off as mayors of major cities, but boy, oh boy, it is a millstone around your neck forever, no matter when you actually serve. I actually think, because right now there were, I mean, again, we're still at the rumor mill. Marsha Fudge was a mayor of a small city in suburban Cleveland. That's never going to harm her. But Keisha Lance Bottoms, who knows what kinds of things that they will come up with about Keisha Lance Bottoms from her time as mayor of Atlanta. And you know why that's an important point, Jason? Because here's a question. Where's Kasim Reed? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, He's he's out of prison. That's the answer, right? And so I think a lot of black mayors is You're trying to get us in so much trouble. <laughs> I have an Atlanta pass. You're trying to get me in trouble. I'm not going to Atlanta anytime soon. I can say what I need to say. But this is also with black mayors, mm-hmm. there's a different scrutiny. Right. And we've oh, seen yeah. a slew of black mayors head to federal prison for narrowly. So Kwame Kilpatrick, what they got Kwame Kilpatrick for, you could take down three dozen senators Ridiculous. right now in Ridiculous. 2020 in the Republican and Democratic Party for what they went after Kwame Kilpatrick for. Well, I mean, he's a classic case of, you know, listen to what your parents said, which is never do what they do. Basically, hey, Ray yeah. Nagin, don't do what they do. Yeah. You're sitting in prison you, for 11 years. You can't do what they do you won't be allowed to get away with what they're able to do. I mean, right. like, perfect example also, Dr. Greer, Andrew Gillum, right? Yeah. Like, people didn't go after Andrew Gillum's campaign. He ran a really, really good campaign. They went after him for stuff he did as mayor of Tallahassee. Did to take Hamilton tickets? Like, right. it's such a challenging position to come from because, quite frankly, unless you have the sort of mythologized, romanticized view of New York that some white pundits have of Rudy Giuliani, it is almost impossible to make a city substantively better as mayor. You can build a couple of things. You can say this school is better than when I came into office, but there's always something about a city that you can say is worse than when you got into office. And of course, because there are one million moving parts and right. much of it you don't have control over. I mean, the New York City mayor has control over such a small percentage of the actual right. budget. Our budget is $9 billion, but what the mayor can actually move around is a few coins. So, you know, you're already constrained. And I think, you know, as we see also with state legislatures moving things around when Black mayors come into power is also something that we don't talk about enough. And to say nothing about what happened to Marion Barry when the federal government was like, oh, let's take away all the power now that we have a Black mayor of Washington, D.C. And he's one of the greatest mayors in Washington, D.C. And I will put that in a tattoo. We talked about getting tattoos. I'm going to get a tattoo of Marion Barry. Can we set our watches? That's my first tattoo. Marion Barry is one of the greatest mayors in any U.S. city, past or present. We can set our watches right now, our Power Rangers watches, whatever. I can give you this prediction. I'm a soothsayer. I am Karnak the Great, Johnny Carson, soothsayer. I'm Miss Cleo the whole bit. Going exactly with what you said, we know that D.C. statehood will happen 15 minutes after D.C. gets a white mayor. That's right. The moment, and they're on that, track to get one. The they're. moment they get a white mayor, and if they're not careful, Atlanta will screw up and have the same situation. If Lance Bottoms ends up going into the administration, she'll get reelected if she stays in office. If she ends up going to the administration, that is going to be a dog fight. In well, her race was a dog fight. But the last four were. Remember, the last four Atlanta mayoral elections have been decided by like 685, 1100, 850. They have all been between 600 and 1000 votes for years, Mm -hmm. but hers was a particularly interesting situation because 
everybody that's sort of allied against Keisha Lance Bottoms, I don't know what happens next year. I really don't know what happens next year. Listen, our good friend and podcast cousin, Dorian Warren, he and I have money on the books. This man owes me so much money because many, (laughs) many years ago, we made bets as to when Detroit would get a white mayor, when Philly would get another white mayor, when DC would get a white mayor, when Atlanta got a white mayor, when New Orleans would get a white mayor. I mean, I'm basically like, I'm just running the tables on this cat. And so (laughs) we know that it's not even about DC getting white mayor. It's Mm. also what the percentage of white people in the city will be. And that will dictate statehood immediately. So listen, we're running out of time and we're still trying to figure out what's in it for us. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments, especially compliments for me, because I need those, to podcast at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Kevin Y. Brown and produced by Abdul Kadus.